Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Leonora LePeter Anton, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter on the Tampa Bay Times Enterprise team. In January, the Times published LePeter Anton's story, Gang Raped at 17, Therapy at 65. The images flowed through her mind on a grainy color reel. Long shots of the dark trees above the car, juxtaposed with close-ups of men from her neighborhood. She remembered the glass phone booth down the street where she called police, then collapsed with her panties still in her hand. The story follows the attempt of Evelyn Robinson to cope with a horrific rape 48 years after it happened. I saw a woman who was trying to figure this out for herself, who had not gotten any help for it for some 50 years. LaPeter Anton has been at the Tampa Bay Times since 2000. Her stories veer toward the unusual, a surrogate mother who can't get pregnant, a broke couple who rent rooms in their mansion. She won a Pulitzer for her work in an investigation into the failing mental hospitals in the state of Florida. As usual, we've linked to all of the stories we talk about today and more. You can find those links at gangrythepodcast.com. Leonora, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you. I'd like to start off by talking about your story, Gang Raped at 17, Therapy at 65, which ran in January uh, of this year, just a couple, not even a couple months ago. Um, but before we, we, start, we talk about that, is, can you read the, f- the first three paragraphs uh, of that story? Sure. The images flowed through her mind on a grainy color reel. Long shots of the dark trees above the car juxtaposed with close-ups of men from her neighborhood. She remembered the glass phone booth down the street where she called police, then collapsed with her panties still in her hand. Now, on a cool February day, almost 50 years later, Evelyn Robinson stood at the counter inside the Pinellas County Courthouse looking for answers in a long, dormant file. The clerk pulled up a record on her computer screen and asked Evelyn about her connection. Quote, are you an attorney, a family member, she asked. I was the victim of a gang rape by four men in 1969, Evelyn replied. This is my case. So this is a really, um, uh, I don't even know how, it's a very sad story, but it's also kind of, in many ways, um, uh, I don't want to say hopeful, but I mean, Evelyn is a very um, strong woman that you're writing about. Um, in general, can you talk about what this story is actually about? Sure. Um, so, so 
Evelyn's story in, in what I saw, I saw a woman who was trying to figure this out for herself, who had not gotten any help for it for some 50 years, and sort of was able to look back and see where it had altered her life. And now 50 years later, she was trying to process it. And I felt that participating in that journey might help other women in some way. So um, I sort of, you know, popped in on her here and there for uh, a full year to try and document that process. Um, and so I guess that's, that's what it's about. It's about trying to cope with trauma, what it involves, um, and learning about yourself. Right, and, and some general kind of context for the story. Evelyn, when she was 17 years old, was uh, was gang-raped by, by men that she knew, um, correct? Yeah, um, <clears throat> so when she was just turned 17, she, um, she was gang-raped by four men in her neighborhood. Um, two of them were twins, well-known twins in the community, and um, Sherman and Norman Britton, and... Uh, she, after she was raped, uh, they dropped her off at a phone booth and she called for help, <clears throat> excuse me, and they were um, arrested and a trial was held and then they were convicted and they spent two years in prison for it um, and then they were released. How did you, um, you, you said you spent almost a year um, with Evelyn working on this, um, you know, spending time with her and talking with her uh, to, to do this story. How did you find out about this in the first place? Well, um, I have the um, photo editor at the paper to thank for that. Uh, he knew Evelyn, and as for one of the first things she did to try and figure this out was she asked him if he could look for the old clips on it, the old newspaper articles from 1969 when the trial was held and when they were arrested. And so he looked them up, and, he, and then he said to her, here they are, but these are really, this is really interesting. Do you mind if I hand it over to a reporter? And she said, sure, no problem. And so then, you know, about two or three weeks later, I found myself across from her, sitting across from her at a, restaurant in um, downtown St. Petersburg, and she just kept talking for like a full hour. I barely, I mean, full two hours. I barely had to ask a question. She was so articulate about what had happened, how she felt about it, what it had, um, what, what it had done in her life, um, how, you know, just, she was just one of the most articulate people I'd ever talked to about it. And so I realized really quick that um, she was somebody who could help other people, who somebody who could, who other people would want to hear from, because she had something to say. That kind of gets to I, I know Lane De Gregory has her list of ways to find stories, and and one of her ways is to be friends with photographers. Um, so apparently that that worked out in in your instance. I guess yes. I mean, it, it could, you know, Lane could have just as easily got this story as I could because she, she knows the photo editor, too. But, yeah, um, exactly. Um, I, I get stories from all different locations. I'm constantly trolling multiple sources because I'm trying to find unusual stories that nobody's ever told before. But in this case, 
um, you know, uh, I learned about it from the photo editor. You you talked about how that first meeting with Evelyn, she, you said she was so articulate and would, would just basically laid out um, a lot of her own history. Um, one of the first things I noticed, you know, especially even as I was reading, um, you know, even the first part of the story is how incredible the details are that Evelyn gives you um, about that night and, and about just her life in general. Um, what what were your meetings like with her? And and I know it says at the end of the story that you met with her 10 times. I'm curious how that reporter source relationship um, changed over the course of those visits. Well, um, actually, <clears throat> it's really interesting. So, you know, one of the ways to get through rape trauma is to talk about it with somebody and to sort of talk about it in a safe location um, and to feel safe while you're talking about it and to do that over and over again. That's called prolonged exposure. Um, and so basically what I was asking Evelyn to do by asking her to talk about it, I was kind of acting like a therapist, even though I know I'm not a therapist. But she kind of came to rely on me almost. Like, she just loved talking to me. She would just tell me everything. She's always wanting to, you know, go through things with me. So at the end of it, she was saying to me, you're my therapist. And I didn't feel like a therapist, but I was the one who was always asking her all these questions, you know, listening to her for hours. So... I don't know, you know, it was, it was, it was an interesting, um, you know, source reporter relationship. Um, uh, you know, I, she grew to trust me and so she revealed a lot and like I said, she had a great memory and she was so amazing. I'm trying to figure, I want to, I'd love to find like one of her quotes. Let me see. Um, uh, let me find one quote. Um, from her, hmm. well, ask me something else while I'm looking. Uh, absolutely, uh, I was gonna. I, I I'm curious, like, what that's like for for you, who who you're not a therapist, to have to be sitting through, um, you know, somebody as they're going through this. Uh, horrific thing that happened to them in, in a way that is helpful for them. But then you are hearing, you know, you have to hear these horrible things um, sometimes over and over again. So what's that like for you as, as a reporter and as, just as a person? Well, um, um, it, you know, I, I guess it's difficult because I, I, I was worried about her, you know, um, I, I was worried that, you know, she would, I don't know, I just was worried about how it would affect her talking to her about it, you know, and not having the tools maybe to, um, handle it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I, but I feel like, uh, you know, we just worked through that together and I, I always tried to ask her how she was doing. I always kept tabs after I talked to her. That's something, you know, I have... A, a strange history in that one of my sources, you know, committed suicide a couple years ago. And so, um, I'm very wary of that. And not that Evelyn at any point in time said she was going to commit suicide or anything. Um, 
but she had tried in her many in her earlier years. So uh, I'm cognizant of that, and um, I I was just trying to make sure she was okay. I guess. Mm-hmm. And I found a quote from her. Here's here's a pretty good one. She said, "Had I been white, would they have gotten twenty years to life?" Evelyn said. You don't always get the justice you're looking for. Everybody loved the guys, and nobody cared about the 17-year-old who got raped. She just, she just had a way of, um, you know. Here, and here she is. When I saw him, I thought, and this is when she saw one of the rapists. When I saw him, I thought, I've been afraid all this time. Part of me was really, really glad to see him. Maybe that's what forgiveness is. I suffered too long. It's been a lot of years. And part of me was thinking, how dare he have 17 children? Right. Um, yeah. She, in, incredibly, incredibly, I mean, incredibly smart. Uh, and I think that first quote, did that come before or after? There, there's a part in the story where um, I think you, you list um, various uh, prison sentences that men have received for raping um, women uh, throughout history. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that comes pretty close to that, right? Um. I think so. I mean, it's where I list what, what those what sentences those guys got in the for the rape mm-hmm. for their for the rape of Evelyn. I think later on is when. Uh, well, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I'm, it, I think that's or, or in another part, but whatever. Right. Um, you you spent a lot of time with Evelyn. Um, how did you? Uh, uh, I actually want to uh, go over a couple of things. Um, one being, you know, she's this very eloquent person. Um, how do you, how do you take notes? Uh, uh, I'm curious about that, uh, in, t- in terms of be able to, to get all these amazing things that she's saying. Um, <clears throat> well, I do take notes. Um, I, I just, I capture them. Sometimes I recorded her like that first meeting mm-hmm. I recorded. Um, but other times. Uh, I just took notes. And one thing I did, you know, I had, we had a videographer. There was a video that went along with this. And so I would always try to, if I did use a quote that was actually in the video, I would, you know, I, I was able to double-check it across to make sure that it was accurate. And I also double-checked quotes, you know, with her mm-hmm. um, to make sure it was accurate. So um, I guess that's basically how. But I take, I basically, I'm, I, I'm uh, somebody who takes, too many notes probably um in real life i'm kind of a a hoardery type person (laughs) not really but not not completely but just a little bit and so my notes are like that i hoard all my quotes so um i'm able to get a lot and uh kind of also i mean i guess this doesn't really have to do with note taking in general but um there's this i think a really impactful uh part of the story where essentially you're writing around it with her um in her car, she's driving uh, through the neighborhood where where she was raped. Um, how did that happen, and what was that like from uh, f- from for you as a reporter? Uh, what what type of insights did that give you? Um, how did that help you understand what was going on uh, better with Evelyn? Well, she was taking us kind of on the journey of her life, and so she was going. Well, here's where I lived when I was. Three, and here's when I li- where I lived when I was, you know, so we would go from one place to the next. <clears throat> and then eventually we got to the house where she was living when this happened. 
And then she drove us the path that she, and so this is part of actually the story. She, she drove the path um, that she went that night. So what happened was, you know, she had bit one Miss, Miss Wildwood contest. Um, Miss Wildwood is a recreation center nearby and with her two friends, ha- um, Hattie and Pat, and she had won it. And so that night her friend called her and said, please come over. And so she walked over to her friend's house. Um, and then in the middle of the night, um, she felt like a, a rodent crawl over her. So she just didn't feel comfortable staying anywhere there anymore. So she decided to walk to her sister's. And as she walked to her sister, one of two of the rapists picked her up and then went and got the other two rapists and then they raped her and then they dropped her off at a phone booth. So then from she showed us that path and then drove to where she was raped and then she drove us to where she was dropped off in the phone booth. And there was a pole, you know, um, in the parking lot of the phone booth and it was still there. It was where the phone booth had been. It had been one of these old-fashioned phone booths that don't exist anymore I was still sitting in the um, parking lot <clears throat> is this pole. And she just like, I don't know, she just went over to it and was so incredibly moved by the fact that it was still there. Like it was some sort of marker of what had happened. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, so that journey was, you know, one other thing that happened was, and you don't see this in the video, but like, you know, when she got to that pole in that place, she just sort of broke down. And, um, you know, she turned and and came over to me and hugged me, you know, so, um, she just, uh, you know, she didn't have many people in her life, um, who understood except for her kids. And of course they're her kids. So, um, you know, anyways. Yeah. And there's an amazing photo, um, with the story of her leaning up against that pole, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, she actually said standing there by that pole for that photo, um, for, you know, cause it took a long time to get that picture. Um, you know, she just said standing there for that long, it, it just helped her think about things. And I don't know, it helped her move to a, a new place. So mm-hmm. anyway, right. there's a part later in the story um, when it says in the story that Norman is approached by a reporter. Um, I'm assuming that reporter was you. Um, what, what was it like, uh, what was it like to approach someone like him and what did you, um, have at least in your mind that you, that you wanted to ask him? Well, I, I think I wanted to ask, I wanted to know if he felt bad, if he thought what had happened was wrong, if he, how he had changed his life, if that had happened at all, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and we went up to his house and it was around Christmas time and, um, he has a wife and, you know, a regular house with Christmas decorations on the house. And so it was just a little, you know, strange. It was hard. I was, you know, it's, he's 70 now, so he's older, but still, um, a little apprehension, a little apprehension on my part going up to that door. Um, but he just immediately shut down. He was not interested, and he just was disdainful um, of the entire effort to talk to him. And so, um, you know, we just—I left him a letter. He, um, he I want—I wanted to—I had written a letter to um, basically sort of re—you know, 
pitching him on the idea of, hey, tell me your, your side. I want to hear your side of this, you know? And um, he handed it back to me, <laughs> and um, I walked away. And then I was like, no, I'm going to leave it in the mailbox. So I went back, and I put it in his mailbox, and but I never did hear from him. There's a really powerful part um, in the story, and it starts getting towards the end, where uh, there's a partial transcript um, of Evelyn's therapy session. Mm-hmm. How um, I, th- I how did you get that, and, and how important was that uh, for you for for the story that you were telling? Well, when I first <clears throat> looked at when I first got, you know started interviewing Evelyn. One thing to keep in mind is she had not been able to afford therapy. And um, she turned 65, went on Medicare, and now she could afford therapy. Um, She had gone to two sort of cheaper therapy-type places before. One was religious and didn't help her. Another, she didn't feel helped her at all, too, and she just walked out after the first meeting in both cases. Um, So, And when I say cheaper, one was a free... And the one was a religious one where she went to um, a a church therapist or something. Anyways, um, but she uh, decided she was going to go to therapy. And so immediately my thought was, oh, my gosh, I want to hear this therapy session for this woman who, uh, you know, hasn't talked about it in 50 years. What's that going to be like, you know? And um, so she had her first session in March, and the, the therapist was like, uh, no way. We're, you know, you can't even record it. Nothing. You know what I mean? Sorry, we're not we're not doing this. Um, and then, but that first session wasn't really a session at all. All it was was kind of a um, setting up for the actual therapy session. Um, so, uh, not, nothing really happened in it. And so then her next appointment got got canceled. And then the appointment. So then we got to the appointment and. She went in with her recorder and said, look, and I, and we had looked it up. She, you know, I'm allowed to record this. It's my session. And that's part of what, you know, the sessions are about sometimes to record them and then listen to them in the safety of your home is one of the, um, tenets of, of, of the therapy and, or at least of prolonged exposure therapy, one version of the therapy. And so the woman was like, sure, you can record it. And so she recorded it and she gave it to me. Um, and Evelyn wanted to help other women, as I said. So that was why I think she wanted her session to be available to other people because she wanted other people to see what it was like. And, um, we, I tried to call the therapist. I stopped by, I wrote letters. I, you know, I just could never get a hold of her. So, um, and I had Evelyn contact her too and, um, to see, and she, still didn't respond about me. So we just went with it without using her name, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Evelyn, but I did go to the session with her, watched her go inside, watched her come back out, went into the office with her, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Evelyn is a very proactive, one of those very proactive sources, right? She definitely um, wants her story told. Uh, have you worked with, and for a very specific reason, I think, and that is to, to help to help other women have you worked with sources that are, are that proactive in um, wanting their stories told in, in, in this way before? Or is this was this kind of a new level for you? No, I've, I've worked with other sources. I mean, I've worked with 
you know, all manner where you're pulling teeth and then um, where you're where you have somebody who's very helpful. Um, and in Evelyn's case, I think, you know, part of it is that makes her such a great source is she is so smart and articulate. I mean, at times when my editor and I would talk, we'd be like, she sounds like the therapist, you know, um, we just thought, wow, uh, that, that's a, those are really smart comments to be making, um, from somebody who's been struggling with it for so many years. Um, she really had an understanding of, of her, of, of it. And, and the reactions to the story were, were like kind of, kind of cool. Um, I mean, people called her courageous and, um, you know, they they also loved one of the things that I saw. Um, they loved that she took all that pain and created a family who loved her so dearly. Um, you know, they made they, they uh, this one woman says, let me, let me see, what was it? Um, it's interesting that Evelyn came from an extremely dysfunctional childhood, lacking any role models, and was able to create a totally different world for her children. Many people repeat learned <clears throat> abusive and dysfunctional behaviors. They turn to drugs or alcohol to cope. As significant as the rape was, it seems to have had a significant influence on Miss Evelyn's um, path to achieving personal greatness. I loved that comment. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. She. Um, what, what did she? What did she think about the story when it came out? Well, what. It, it was interesting, you know, um, she was overwhelmed, uh, and she also had all of these people calling her wanting either because they had been raped or they, um, wanted her to talk to other rape victims or, um, you know, they, they had known her in childhood or, or whatever it is. They, they, just tons of people. And she felt like a little bit like it was, it was hard for her to become this spokesperson for other rape victims. She didn't really want to become, she didn't really want to, um, at first, I think, you know, step out into the public eye like that. It was uncomfortable for her and it provide and it produced anxiety, but ultimately, um, you know, she realized that's what she wanted to do and she embraced it and, so last week, I think she um, marched with some other women and ta- women in Tallahassee, um, some Me Too um, rape victims, and um, it, you know people who were um, I don't know up there doing some things. And then also next week she's a uh, you know at a, at a women's empowerment um, gathering in Tampa, I think, um, and she's going to talk. So um, you know, I guess that's where where she's at. Right. Right. Uh, was this the first kind of big story that you've done, uh, that Mar- Maria Carrillo edited? Yes. Uh, it is. I, I know, you know, you've been at the, the Tampa Bay times, well, the St. Petersburg times, then the Tampa Bay times, uh, since is 2000. Is that correct? Yes. So, uh, so you've worked with a lot of amazing and great editors, um, over that time. Uh, and I'm I'm curious, like, how was working with Maria on this one different from how you've worked with other um, really amazing editors uh, on uh, on other stories? Wow. Um, so 
so I'm kind of a funny case. Uh, you know, I've I've been at five different newspapers, and I think I once counted, and I've had 37 editors, something in that manner. Um, I've had 18 editors at the Times, and some of those were just short periods of time, and some were longer. Um, and I've had a lot of editors who are long gone, like, um, you know, Chuck Murphy and um, David Dahl and, uh, you know, Bill Durier and Kelly Benham and um, Heather Urquides and just all different, I mean, so many different editors. So um, Mike Wilson and, and I guess with Maria, you know, this is our first story as I said, and um, I found that Maria uh, let me, um, is one of the, is, is somebody who lets me, um, my voice comes through more than anybody else um, before, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like she's an editor who makes the writing better and at the same time, um, you know, lets it be what you created or whatever originally so that it, it sounds like you, if that makes any sense. So, um, and, and I just feel like there was, you know, great direction. So I'm, I, I was really happy with, um, you know, that process uh, and how this turned out. Um, I really, I believe in, in editors more than anything. I, I believe that they have always lent a hand in um, improving my game and in make, helping me reach a higher level of uh, in, qual- in the quality of my work. And um, I feel like Evelyn, I feel like Maria is totally, you know, somebody who's going to help me with that. Um, you know, to, to improve what, I, what I'm doing, because that's what I'm always trying to do. I'm always trying to improve my stories, improve, you know, what I'm doing and that kind of thing. What was maybe the biggest um, impact or piece of advice uh, or maybe idea for change that she had on this story? If that's kind of, if you can think of it quickly. Mm, it's been a while, but let me see, the biggest impact. Um Um, I guess, uh, I mean, we, what, it, the thing that I really love that Maria does, and, um, I actually have never had an editor who does this to this degree. And that is, is that in the beginning, she's really big about talking about it. And then also really quickly early on, she's like, let's sit down and figure out what this story is going to, you know, what, where are we going with this and what are we doing? And then we start to map it out, like the path of the story. And that really helps somebody like me, who sometimes, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a, so the type of reporter who maybe collects too much stuff. And, you know, sometimes I have a hard time processing it all and figuring out where it all goes. And, you know, um, so, but, but, you know, sitting down and thinking about the story that early on, what what was going to be the first section, what was going to be the second section, what was going to be the third section. You know, that was so helpful to me. And it made the writing process faster, um, you know. And um, I always knew what I was, where I was going and what I was doing. So I, I feel like that would probably have to be one of the biggest impacts. I mean, I have another story I'm working on right now, and I'm really the depths of reporting and yet we've already sat down and tried to map the story out and and once again that's really helped me because it makes me me focus my reporting 
you were a you were a part of a of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting in uh, 2016 for a series of stories on the escalating violence and neglect at Florida's mental hospitals. Uh, that that was a combination project between the Tampa Bay Times and the the Sarasota Herald Tribune. Can you talk a little bit about how that entire project came together and and what role you kind of played uh, in the creation of that project? Sure. So um, that that project came because um, <clears throat> let's see here. So who was um, the investigations editor of our paper? He um, had worked with the reporter on a a mental health story, and he, um, it was about people getting stuck in, in prisons, um, I'm sorry, in jail and, and in prison, people who were mentally ill, just sort of being stuck, unable to get out. And so he felt there was something there, and he had pulled a database for another story, but it, when he was at the Sarasota Herald Tribune, and the Sarasota Herald Tribune received that database while he, Chris was thinking of doing this mental health story. And it had all the mental health data in it. So the Sarasota Herald Tribune reporters and, and editors called Chris and said, why don't we partner? And at the time, I happened to be working on a story or pursuing a story about um, how people in Florida or how in, uh, the, the jails and the prisons in Florida try to get pet patients competent. And it was it's through a series of things called Jeopardy-like games, where they talk about what a first-degree felony is and that kind of thing. And I was trying to pursue that story. He heard that about that, and he asked me if I'd like to join the team. So I became the reporter at the Times, and then there was Anthony Cormier, who was the investigations editor at the Sarasota Herald Tribune at the time, and Michael Braga, who was an investigations reporter at the time. And through the story, Anthony moved over to the Times. Um, as far as my role, um, I, I was kind of um, the person who was trying to find the sources to um, build the story around, you know, the, 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 the people who would become the subjects of the story, stories. So I was always trying to find those people, run them down in the bowels of Florida, you know, and, and bring back the story to show um, to, 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 to give this story, it's people, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The, the, the examples, um, and, and did a lot of the writing and the third day story on Anthony Barsati is, um, you know, I, I worked a lot on that one, put, uh, pulling that one together. And, um, so basically that was my role. Do you, I mean, that, that, that entire series is about kind of a lot of the failures within the Florida, um, mental hospitals, and I, I started to see some stories out of the the Broward High School shooting from a couple of days ago um, about how the shooter himself had mental issues that were never properly addressed in some way, shape, or form. I mean, is that I mean, is our your story point out a lot of things that are broken? Have they been fixed? Can you tie the two together at all? Do you know, or is um, it anything you've I, thought I would about? Definitely say that. They haven't been fixed. The only thing that happened as a result of the stories, a lot of money was put towards mental health in Florida, uh, in, towards mental hospitals in Florida, and uh, towards uh, training of employees, and also towards 
security cameras and different things like that, some some more therapies and things like that. Um, but it definitely didn't uh, change things. And I've written a couple of other stories since that show that the system is still, you know, broken. Um, in terms of, uh, you mean connecting, connecting what to the Broward? Say that again. You mean, I'm, you know, is that real? I mean, I don't think was he in a mental hospital or I don't believe he I was. Mean, so uh, maybe one yeah. of those falling through the cracks type of issues. And there's so many of those. I mean, I, I, I just wrote a story in August about a kid who, um, you know, went into the mental hospitals and, um, he, while he was in there, you know, he was, he was schizophrenic. He was, he, he was arrested. He's incompetent to proceed. So they send him to a mental hospital and he becomes blind and then deaf while he's in the jail and they don't take him for the medical care he needs to see what the problem is. And he loses his sight and his hearing. And now his father has not only a mentally ill son that he has to take care of, but a mentally ill blind and deaf son that he has to take care of. And um, so, you know, there's still stuff going on mm-hmm. in those in those hospitals. Right, right. Uh, there was a series uh, a while ago at the Times um, that was one of my favorite things to read whenever it showed up, and that was Encounters. Um, uh-huh. Did you ever write any of those? I did. What was uh, maybe your favorite one that you did? Oh, favorite. Oh, my God. Um, I just wrote one actually last September about a woman who um, who was trying to get a job way after a rough run. You know, she'd lost her job, been gone to jail, and now she's trying to get a job at Subway. And I was able to sit next to her while she interviewed at mm-hmm. Subway. Um, so I wrote that. Was, I don't wouldn't say it was my favorite, but it's the one that I remember. Um, I've done tons of them over the years, but of course, my brain is going blank. <laughs> Um, I guess I didn't realize that, that they were, they were still happening. They are, uh, you know, they're, they're here and there. We still do them for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, like I said, I just did that one in September. Yeah. The key to the encounters, uh, is basically to have sort of a beginning and a middle and an end. So it's sort of a, a narrative story based around a small moment. Um, and so, something needs to happen, somebody needs to have some sort of resolution or something. Um, it doesn't no, necessarily always have to be resolved, but somebody has to come to so, some sort of, you know, um, conclusion about something or some sort of thought. And so, um, you know, they, they're great to, to run out and try and find somebody going through something unusual, somebody, um, you know, something you've never, you never, you've never seen before, a woman who's on her I, I can't remember which interview it was, maybe the 27th interview or something for a job. And is she going to get this job? So you've got a driving question. And um, so that's what they're basically about. I, I love those stories. They're so, they're so much fun uh, and so, so good. Um, before we finish up, I, I just want to let our listeners know that Leonora is going to be a panelist at AWP's annual Massive Creative Writing Conference in Tampa. In March, uh, I'm moderating the panel, which is called Why Storytelling Thrives in the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, Lane Gregory, Ben Montgomery, and Michael Cruz are also going to be on the panel, and they're all going to be talking about why they've been able to write the amazing stories that they have um, for, for that newspaper. So 
if you are going to be at AWP, make sure you come to our panel uh, because I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, and I want to thank you for uh, agreeing to be on it. Sure. No problem. Um, with that, uh, thanks so much for joining the podcast, Leonora. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. Sure. No problem. Thank you for um, your interest and take care. I've been talking with Leonora Lapeter Anton, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. Her story, Gang Raped at 17, Therapy at 65, was published by the Times in January. You can find a link to that story and many more at gangrethepodcast.com. Did you know that you can find just about all of the Gangry the Podcast episodes? We've done 55 of them now. On our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you'll find interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Graham, Jeannie Marie Laskus, Tom Juneau, Chris Jones, Janet Reitman, Wright Thompson, Catherine Miles, Chuck Klosterman, Mac McClellan, Thomas Lake, and so many more. They are all there, along with links to many of the amazing stories and books written by our guests. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.